This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Today, Drew Friedman joins me. We'll talk about two issues affecting federal employees, locality pay and developments in the Thrift Savings Plan and its website. And we'll start with locality pay. The Office of Personnel Management announced plans to establish four new locality pay areas. Its proposed rule also included plenty of other pay recommendations from that Federal Salary Council. Joining me to break it all down, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And some of these locality pay areas are a little bit of a head-scratcher. Tell us where they are. Tom, the four new locality pay areas that we will see if, if this proposal is approved are Fresno, California, Reno, Nevada, Rochester, New York, and Spokane, Washington. And each of those includes a couple other counties as well within them to kind of put that all together. All of those four areas that would be the new locality pay areas are currently part of the rest of U.S. locality pay area. And if once these changes are implemented, it would impact about 16,000 federal employees across all of those four regions combined. OPM is planning to implement the changes in time for those federal employees to see the changes reflected in their first paychecks of 2024. All right. And just for clarification, for those that might be new to this, this is where the federal office is or where their residences are? It's based on where the federal office is. Right. So if you live in high rent area, but work in some schlubby place, you're not getting the locality pay. Right. And we're not, you know, I'm not sure exactly how often it happens that you have that difference, but it is technically based on the office location. Yeah, I just thought we would establish that since we talk about this every year. And fundamentally, the government has it so that people that are in working in high cost areas are compensated for conditions beyond their control. That's the basis for this, correct? Right. And contrary to popular belief, it's actually not based on cost of living, but locality pay is actually calculated based on the wages that private sector employees in a given region make. So if you have similar types of positions between federal sector and private sector, the locality pay adjustments are basically meant to bring federal employees' wages up to to be more similar to those in the private sector. Right. So it's a derivative of the cost of living because the presumption is that higher pay for private sector has something to do with where it is. You're going to make more as a barista in Manhattan than you are maybe in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I don't know. I haven't looked at Starbucks pay lately. (laughs) But the process for creating these OPM proposes, but they don't dispose, correct? Right. There is a long process to kind of develop new locality pay areas. The OPM proposed rules are a later step in that process. So initially where this started was with the Federal Salary Council, which is a council that's composed of labor relations and uh, federal pay experts. And they basically issue an annual report with their recommendations for, you know, what they think should be a locality pay area, if there should be any new ones, if there should be any counties added to existing ones, any other changes related to federal pay for the general schedule. Those recommendations from that annual report then get sent to a panel, which is called the President's Pay Agent. That's a three-person panel with the Office of Management and Budget Director, the Director of the Office of Personnel Management, and the Labor Department Secretary. And those three people then issue 
another report where they either approve or deny the recommendations from the Federal Salary Council. Then that's where we see OPM come in. The president's pay agent approved recommendations go to OPM. They determine how to then implement those changes. Right. So there is a little bit of a circular thing going on here because OPM proposes, then OPM votes at least one third of the vote. And given this administration and Labor Department, I think we know how this one's going to go. The other thing we want to ask, too, is of the proposed pay raise that comes each year from the pay agent or what the president implements, because Congress never seems to quite exactly vote on it. Sometimes they do. A portion of that pay only is the locality pay. It's not the big part of the raise, is it? That's right. And, you know, it's not exactly set in statute for what the base pay versus locality pay should be. But typically what we see is the locality pay is 0.5%, so half a percent of the overall uh, average federal pay raise. So, for example, in 2023, federal employees got a an average 4.6% federal pay raise. That was a 4.1% base pay raise that every federal employee got across the country, no matter what. And the 0.5% locality pay part is actually an average, so federal employees might see slightly above the total 4.6% depending on where they live. Right. So if you live in a non-locality pay area, you just get the 4.5%. You don't get the 0.5%. And of the 0.5%, that varies how much you get of that depending on the flavor of your locality. Right. So there are some pay locality areas that are a lot higher. So for example, the DC area is going to be one that's where you see a lot higher salaries and therefore a higher locality pay area some more rural areas across the country where federal employees are working, you're going to see that percentage be a little bit lower. Interesting. All right. And we mentioned at the top there are some other recommendations that OPM included in the rule for the locality pay. What else can feds expect to see in the coming year or hope for, let's say? Maybe they can't expect it just yet. They can hope for it. Nothing is quite set in stone yet, Tom. So this is all we'll just see kind of how everything plays out. But on top of the four new locality pay areas that OPM is planning to implement, they're also planning to expand already existing locality pay areas. And there are three that are on the docket for that. So we have the Dukes and Nantucket counties that will be added to the Boston locality in Massachusetts. You have Huron County, Michigan being added to the Detroit pay locality, and then the Pacific and San Juan counties in Washington being added to the Seattle locality. So all of those they're basically going to see their pay, the employees working in those specific counties, go up potentially a little bit next year as well. And then there's also a broader change to the way that we're kind of mapping out locality pay areas that OPM is planning to implement. Basically, the Office of Management and Budget recently updated its definitions of what are called metropolitan statistical areas and combined statistical areas which can alter the way the map is laid out for locality pay areas. It's a little bit complicated, but what federal employees should know about this is that it means there could be dozens of different jurisdictions or regions across the country that may be rearranged to different locality pay areas in the near future. But OPM importantly noted that no one would be moved to a lower paying area 
as a result of this. Yeah, it's definitely a one-way train. And, you know, at first glance, you look at a place like Nantucket and you think, why would that be locality pay? Who is there? But when you think about it, there could be several federal employees on a place like Nantucket. You could have the National Park Service. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing probably maybe Coast Guard. There could be a few people there from the Coast Guard, civilians. Also, you know, the uh, Social Security Administration has offices in obscure but high pay. I don't not saying Nantucket's obscure. It's obscure to me. I'm a Martha's Vineyard guy. But, you know, the idea that feds are pretty much everywhere and some of these places are quite expensive. I mean, Nantucket, you and I couldn't swing a house there, I don't think, from what I've seen when I'm looking on Zillow. Where... <laughs> right. And I think the important takeaway, I, I can't say for sure either who exactly is working in each of these areas or how many exact people are in each of the counties. But I do know that just under 17,000 federal employees as a result of those changes are going to actually be getting their locality pay changed. So overall, all of these recommendations will impact about 33,000 federal employees across the country. And does that include postal workers? No, it does not. The postal service workers are actually on a different uh, pay scale, so they don't get locality pay. They just get to deliver those big fat checks to the people that do get them if they don't get electronic deposit, I suppose. And of course, none of this is, as you said earlier, set in stone. I mean, there's a lot of process that has to happen. Congress will probably weigh in. And if it doesn't, then the president just goes ahead with the recommendations, typically. So what can we expect between now and the end of the fiscal The fiscal 2024 budget request did ask Congress for a 5.2% average federal pay raise. And we might see a little bit more, I guess you could call it shakiness this year. The 4.6% average pay raise went in pretty smoothly last year, but we've had some bigger questions about what the federal pay raise is going to be next year. So we have some lawmakers, mostly Democrats, in support of this annual bill that gets introduced called the FAIR Act, and that one is asking for an even bigger pay raise of 8.7%. But on the other side, you do have several House Republicans who have been pushing in the opposite direction and calling for an end to these annual federal pay increases for government employees. So there are a lot of factors at play right now, and it's it's really just going to be a matter of wait and see for what that actual pay raise will be next year. Right, because we should note that in the national defense bills going on right now that are being have been voted out of committee in a couple of cases, there's that 5.2% for military pay. And typically military pay and civilian employee pay stay close to lockstep, right? That's been the recent history. That's true. That is typical for most years. It is a good indication that there may be a 5.2% average pay raise for civilian employees next year. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but that has been the trend in, in recent years. What else do we need to know about that Republican idea of reform that's simply ending the annual pay raises? Because that's not really reform. Civil service pay reform gets discussed a lot every year. Nothing really fundamentally changes. Do you see that happening at all this year? Again, it's hard to say. The Republican Study Committee did uh, put out a report recently where they were calling for uh, cuts to federal pay and benefits and more of a push towards performance-based raises for federal employees. But of course, it would have to go through the Senate. And there's nothing to say that everyone's going to be on board with all of those pushes. But it is something that Republicans have said would they think would be a good idea. Right. There's always the idea of greater contribution out of the paycheck by feds for their annuities. And that happened a few years ago. And so there's a two-tiered system. Employees hired after a certain date pay higher toward their annuities. 
and that's often touted as a cut in benefits. Depends on how you look at it. It's definitely a reduction in take-home pay, but it doesn't really affect your salary technically or your benefits technically. It just feels that way, and I guess maybe that's the point. Nothing is set in stone at this point. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman will take a short break, and when we come back, a review of recent developments in the Thrift Savings Plan. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tammen. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin, in studio with Drew Friedman. We now turn to the latest from the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. And Drew, at the latest monthly meeting, it seems like they were kind of patting themselves on the back a little bit, or at least the contractor Accenture was, when it comes to the performance of the portal by which people access and manage their accounts. And uh, just remind us, that didn't get off to such a great start about a year ago, right? That's right, Tom. This is a major change that Accenture is saying has happened since the initial rollout last summer. So what happened was on June 1st of last year, 2022, that's when the initial Converge uh, update officially launched. And at that time, you had a lot of participants who were having trouble logging in with new accounts or getting their accounts set up. And then because of those tech issues, that caused the call volume at Thriftline, TSP's customer service center, to just absolutely skyrocket. Those were some of the initial issues, but there were some long-term issues as well. Things like missing account history, not being able to name beneficiaries in your accounts, and lots of other stuff that eventually gained attention in Congress. There's a, a government accountability office report underway, so a lot of these uh, concerns and frustrations are still ongoing. But at the same time, from the contractor's perspective, from Accenture's perspective, they are touting a lot of uh, progress from the initial launch last year. Yeah, the GAO report is not going to be out till early of next year. By then, the furor will have died down, I think, and people will be used to this thing. And I remember TSP saying that, well, some of the data will never be there historically online because their research showed it was almost never accessed. And right. so a few people that tried to access maybe made it seem like that particular problem was worse than it was. And you can still get the information. I think you have to write to TSP. But yeah, the ability to not, or the inability to do a lot of the normal functions caused a spike in calls and they weren't ready for that. So it kind of cascaded on itself. But things have gotten better. They fixed the call centers a lot. They've also fixed the website a lot. And some of those stats came out. Right. At the most recent TSP monthly board meeting, Accenture was going through a couple uh, data points that they wanted to share with the board and with participants. So what they say is that they have 3.72 million online accounts established in the new system. They have close to 50 million logins total to the new My Account platform and a little over 800,000 mobile app downloads. So those are some of the numbers they're saying, okay, you know, the initial launch was pretty rocky, pretty tumultuous. Of course, you know, they admit that they have apologized for that. And now they're saying there have been improvements. And 
you know, that's not to say on the other side there aren't still people, aren't still TSP participants who are particularly frustrated with some of these long-term issues. Well, sometimes people get mad at something and they stay mad forever, regardless of the change (laughs) in the conditions. But that three and a half million or so accounts, that doesn't really cover the entire TSP population. Not even really close, Tom. There are close to seven, I think somewhere between 6.5 and 7 million participants in the TSP overall. So that's representing just over half of participants who have set up new accounts with the new uh, My Account platform. But the ultimate goal for transitioning the record keeper from the perspective of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board was to modernize the IT infrastructure of the TSP and just basically make a bigger update to both security and transition to a lot more online uh, and digital assets that TSP participants can access and can make a lot more digital transactions. So that's kind of the end goal here. Uh, And the board has said that on the back end, they haven't had any issues with the data itself, but it's a lot more of the customer or participant-facing services that have had those ongoing issues. Right. They're calling for operational excellence improvement in year two, and just looking at the you know the presentation on this, participant experience enhancements include a new status tracker coming. They call it a pizza tracker, whatever that means. Right. So... Think they're trying to get uh, you to think about it this way. You know, you have Domino's who has their online pizza tracker, and that essentially lets you look at, okay, when it, when I when do I order my pizza? When is it put in the oven? When is it ready to go? When is it out for delivery? So you get to see all those steps happening in real time. And Accenture has said that they essentially want to replicate that same formula for TSP transactions. So if you have something like a withdrawal or a loan, you can see every step of the process, your, you know, theoretical pizza being baked and then see and that'll hopefully give participants a clear picture of, you know, if they're frustrated with how long something is taking, maybe they can see a little bit better, okay, what is happening to the transaction or uh, my request that I put in. Right. And I think, wasn't that pizza tracking later shown to be a complete fabrication on the part (laughs) of the pizza chain? That that is a good point. And, you know, I I can't really speak to how that will translate to uh, Accenture's goal here. But, you know, that is But we get the idea. You want to be able to track your order. And then some of their technology upgrades, and this might be a little bit more significant, deploy enhanced bank account verification tools to shorten the waiting period for certain money out transactions. Yep, that is one thing that Accenture is hoping to do. They haven't said exactly what the timeline would be for that, but the goal is to either cut down or fully eliminate a typical seven-day hold when that happens. And that's also part of that process for moving a lot more uh, transactions online and making more digital things available. And they're hoping that will shorten the process for that. And they say operational performance improvements introducing procedural improvements for specific transactions and participant requests, such as legal and death claims. Although for death claims, you got all the time in the world. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, they are trying to fix that and speed that up as well. That's that's something that is, you know, now that we're in year two after Accenture took over that contract and the record keeper uh, program was rolled over, that's part of their more long-term goals. And they've kind of talked about, you know, at this most recent board meeting saying that they want their 
approach to be what they call participant-centric or participant-focused. So thinking about, okay, what do participants want and how can we make that happen? They've you know, tried to run surveys about quarterly to see satisfaction of participants and what else they're looking for with the, the updated platform here. And just to be fair here, they are still getting complaints from participants. Right. Those have not really gone away. And there are some, you know, longer term issues. So, for example, just in the last couple of weeks, we saw several TSP participants file a class action lawsuit against the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board and Accenture Federal Services. And they're saying that, you know, even though some of those initial issues have subsided, there are a lot more long term impacts that Uh, participants saw, especially those who had to take out loans or withdrawals, lots of those time-sensitive things that that happened during the initial months of the rollout. Uh, Participants who were trying to do that at that time saw a lot of issues. Either they weren't able to get the loan, get it. They weren't able to get it in time. Maybe had to switch to a different um, a different provider. So they're they're claiming that you know the board and. Accenture didn't give them the services that were required by law. Right. And it's difficult to see how a class action lawsuit could necessarily move forward because every single person's specific complaint is different. Nobody does the same thing exactly. Plus, these things take a long time to certify in the court. And then it could be years. It will be years Mm -hmm. and years till there's final resolution, assuming it can get certified as a class action lawsuit. Right. No, you're right. There's there's no guarantee that that will happen. And as you said, it, it would take years. But in the initial uh, lawsuit file that they that they filed, it said that the, it could have been hundreds, if not thousands, of TSP participants who had been affected by this what they call a similar type of issue. So, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But as you said, it will be years before we really see anything happening with that. And in the meantime, the funds are doing fairly decent this year. Right. Everything is, you know, other than those kind of tech issues or uh, underlying issues, those things having to deal with IT modernization, uh, overall things seem to be generally okay on that end of things, at least. And it reminds me of that movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Whatever happened to the annuity calculator on there? That was definitely a favorite feature of the old TSP and the old My Accounts uh, platform that participants had. And now there a lot have asked over the past year, where is the annuity calculator and how can I get access? The answer is it is actually not available in my account currently, but Accenture and the board have said they are planning to add it in at some point. They haven't given a timeline timeline exactly on when that would happen. But we know that is something that they're aware of. Participants really do want that back, and they're hoping to get that in, but they haven't said the time. Right. I mean, that's everybody's going to be popular site. I mean, people have one fundamental question about retirement, and that is, how much a month? And the calculator would tell you that. Right. Just like Social Security is very easy to find how much a month. At any time, you can go on to MySSA, and it'll tell you what it looks like projected for when you retire, and you can pick the year and so on. And that's what the uh, SERS and FERS calculator was doing. Or I guess FERS, the SERS people, have all retired, I think, for the most part. Getting back to that GAO report, what do we know about the scope of what they'll be looking at? And they say it's going to be months yet till their report comes out. It's still going to be a while down the road till we see the actual results or that actual report come out. Currently, GAO has said that they are auditing, they're in the process of auditing the rollout overall. So they're looking at 
you know, how that process really happened, what led up to, um, or, or what in the planning with Accenture and with the board led up to kind of a lot of those in early issues that we saw last summer. So they've said that work is now underway. They'll complete the audit by early 2024 and then at some point after there. So it's possible sometime later in uh, 2024 we'll see the report come out. But again, it's going to be at least several months before we see anything happen there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, as always, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll be back next week with more of what you need to know here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.